this weekend, I am addressing the topic of sexual intimacy. Uh, someone came up to me and said, I'm a little uncomfortable about having my kids in the service. What do you think? And I said, hey, listen, my mom and dad are listening. How awkward do you think it is for me, right? But we're going to talk about it. And I want to begin where the Bible begins. That's Genesis chapter 1. So if you have your Bible turned there, that's the one book you ought to be able to find. Okay, Genesis chapter 1. It doesn't get much easier than that. And as you're turning to that first page, uh, understand that Genesis 1 is a general statement of God's activity in the first six days of creation. You can read it on your own. God created land and sky and sea and plants and animals and fish. He even created mankind. And then following this marvelous act of creation, God steps back. He relaxes. He looks at everything and he appraises his work. And it was very good. And then when you get to Genesis chapter 2, it's as if God zooms in and he focuses in. He amplifies the creation of mankind. For example, you get to chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis, and it says that God created man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man, Adam, became a living being. And then you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and it says that God looked at Adam and said this, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, we don't know what brought God to that conclusion. We don't know if he looked at Adam. Maybe Adam was, I don't know, swinging through the trees with the monkeys. I don't know. Running with a sharp stick with his shoelaces untied. And God's saying, the man's going to kill himself. We got to do something about this. And he says, I will make a helper, a companion, a playmate suitable for him. And I say that because this Hebrew word helper, it means corresponding to him. I'm going to make someone who is in harmony with him. So God decides to provide a corresponding companion. You read about it in verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And then when you get to verse 24, we get this never-to-be-improved-upon statement of marriage. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And then notice this. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. That's a good life right there, right? But that's also what a successful marriage looks like. In fact, let me give you four ingredients that can be found in every successful marriage. Each one of these ingredients comes out of Genesis 2. First of all, there has to be a severance. Verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother. It just simply means that that bride, that groom that is getting married, they have to separate. They have to break dependent ties with their parents. And we talked about that before. Your, the person you honored the most was your parents. And now all of a sudden, Jesus and God both say in, in, in Genesis chapter 1, then later on when Jesus addresses it in Matthew 19, that, 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 that severance has to take place. Second, there must be permanence. Verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And this word united sometimes is translated cleave. It means to bond, to glue, to permanently fix. So there's severance, there's permanence. Third, there's unity, verse 24, and they become one flesh. And as we've seen in this series, this is an incredible thought. I mean, God says that two distinct people can be so bonded together, they can be so woven together in body, soul, mind, and spirit that he sees them as one instead of two individuals. And then that leads forth to intimacy. Severance, permanence, unity, intimacy. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And it was in this 
incredible environment of innocence that God came up with this idea of sexual intimacy. And that's what I want to talk about this weekend. Here's the question I want us to answer. How do we experience sexual intimacy as God designed it to be experienced? And in case you have to leave early, let me just kind of tell you what it's going to boil down to, okay? At some point in our lives, we have to choose, are we going to live within the boundaries that God has established for sexual intimacy, which would be what we would refer to as a life of sexual purity, or are we going to choose to live outside the boundaries that God has established for sexual intimacy, and then we would move into the realm of sexual immorality. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. This is what I know about everybody here this weekend. Every one of us have made moral decisions that we regret. Maybe that decision was extreme. Maybe it wasn't too extreme. Maybe it was in college. Maybe it was last year. Maybe it was last night. But if we were honest, we would all admit, I have crossed some lines morally I wish I hadn't crossed. And I think we would also admit that those decisions have been some of the biggest regrets of our lives. That's what happens when you move outside the boundaries that God established. Now, with all of that in mind, pretend you're God. For some of you, that will not be too hard. Okay? I get your emails. Okay? So pretend you're God, and you have all these people that you created, and one of the gifts that you created them to experience, created for them to enjoy, is this gift of sex. I mean, can you imagine God sitting in heaven one day with the Trinity thinking, wow, I have got the coolest idea, right? So understand, God isn't against sex. He created sex. It was his idea. He even created the venue in which we can enjoy this gift. It's called marriage. So understand, sex as God designed it. It's a positive thing. It is a good thing. But if you were God... And you created sex, and you saw all the devastation caused by the people you love abusing this gift. You saw all the children who grew up in confusion, all the teens, all the college students that had all this confusion because of the abuse of this gift. You saw all the marriages that were being destroyed because of the abuse of this gift. You saw all the guilt, all the hurt, all the shame because of the abuse of this gift. I mean, you're God. You love the people you created. You have an incredible plan for each of their lives, but they keep missing it because of the abuse of this gift. If you're God, what would you say to the people you created about sexual immorality? About experiencing sex outside of the boundaries that you had established it to be experienced? Let me show you. If you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. This is what it says. Very simple. Flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Let me say that again because some of you dozed off. Flee from sexual immorality. Any questions? No. Any clarification? You say, yeah, Mike, what does flee mean in the Greek? Does it really mean flee? This is what it means. Get the heck out of Dodge. That, that's what it means. In other words, when you find yourself in that danger zone, don't go, whoa, this might be dangerous. Don't hang around and analyze the situation. When you find yourself in the danger zone, don't pause and pray for wisdom. Don't flirt with it. Don't see how close you can get to the line. God says, because of what's at stake, you need to flee. You need to run. You need to get away from sexual immorality. And Paul goes on and gives us the reason in verse 18. Now, this is very interesting. He says this. 
All other sins a person commits are outside his body. But whoever sins sexually, oh, that's different, sins against his own body. I mean, let's be honest. Paul is just saying what we already know. There is something different. There is something unique about sexual sin. We can sit in church and pretend that it is the same as stealing a pack of gum or jaywalking or cheating on an exam or maybe gossiping about someone. And all of those are sins from God's perspective. But you know what? We all know deep down inside exactly what Paul said. There is something unique about sexual sin. I mean, when it comes to other sins, eventually we find forgiveness. We put it behind us. Years later, we may look back at that season of life that we were going through, and we laugh at how stupid we were at our behavior, right? But I'm telling you, sexual sin is different. It will affect you spiritually. It will affect you emotionally. It will affect you physically. It can stick to you like honey, and in some cases, it will follow a person throughout their life. And it's not that God doesn't forgive you. He forgives you. It's just sometimes it is so hard for you to forgive yourself. So if you were God and you saw all of this hurt that was going on because of this abuse of this gift that you created for mankind, what would you say? God says, don't mess around with it. Flee from it. Run from it. Now, here's the big question. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you do that in a culture where the attitude is, come on, Mike, everybody does it. That is so old school. Nobody lives like that anymore. Everybody is sleeping around. Just be safe. Just be careful. How in the world do you live a life of sexual purity surrounded by chaos and everybody else is saying it really is okay. Just be careful. Well, let me give you a suggestion. Here's the suggestion. As a Christian, you set standards so, back, so far back from the line of immorality that if you were to violate your standard, there would be no consequences. In other words, ahead of time, you make decisions like, these are the only kinds of places I will go. This is the only kind of person I will date. These are the only circumstances that I will date under. But you set standards so far back from the cliff of going over that even if you were to compromise on one of those standards, there's so many still left and from between you and the cliff, there would be no consequences. That's how you flee. That's how you run. That's how you stay away from sexual immorality. Let me just give you an example. When I was young, and partly it's because when I was pastoring, I was actually going to seminary. I had a, a professor, Neil Anderson, who was over pastoral ministries. It's because I knew pastors who had fallen because of sexual immorality. I set a standard as a very, very young pastor. The standard was this. Never be alone in my office with a woman. Never counsel a woman with just me and the woman. The door had to be open. I had to be in the fireside room where it's surrounded by glass. Someone else had to be in the, win in the office with me or I didn't counsel a woman one-on-one. -on -one. And I will tell you, in the early days, we actually lost a family. Because when I started the church, my, my office was in the basement of my home. Laura had to work at the time, so she was out in the RTP. And we had a young couple in our church, and there was only about 100 people in the church. So everybody knew everybody, and everybody knew everybody's problems, right? And this was a young couple. They were constantly fighting. I was constantly going to their house, talking them off the cliff. And one Monday, she called me. She was in tears. She said, we had a big blow-up last night. I feel like I just need to come and chat with you to talk to you about what's going on. And I said, listen, I, that's fine. 
but I need an hour or two because I'm here by myself in my home and I need to get someone here. And I had a niece who helped me start the church. She was a nurse and I knew often she was off during the day. So my plan was to call her and get her to come to the house. And I didn't want my neighbors seeing some young blonde chick walking in my house and wondering what was going on. So this was just my standard. This young lady got so offended that I was questioning her integrity. She left the church because I had that standard. Just a couple of years ago, there was a lady along with her teenage daughter who, who set up an appointment with me. They came to the office. It was in a situation that both of them needed to be involved in the conversation. But then I asked a question. At, at one point, the mom looked at her daughter and said, Honey, could you step out so I could talk to Pastor Mike privately? So the young girl got out. She opened the door. She shut the door. And all of a sudden, I'm in this office with this woman by myself feeling very, very, very uncomfortable. Was it because it's a sin for me to be in my office with a woman? No. Was it because I was doing something wrong? No. It's because for years I had had this standard, and when you set a standard, you tune your conscience into that personal standard. And when you violate that standard, that it's like something is going off in your brain. It's like an alarm going, danger, 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 danger. And it's not because you've done something wrong. It's because you're standard has been compromised something's not right this isn't right abort 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 right so i got up i walked over to the door i opened the door i sat back down and i finished the conversation and as weird as that may sound to many of you i am so glad i felt uncomfortable that's the value of setting a standard you keeps you away from the danger zone so if you're here this weekend and you're married, you should be asking yourself questions like this. What kind of standards do I need to set that will keep me away from the danger zone? Or maybe a better question, how do I affair-proof my marriage? And the answer is we set standards that are so far back from the line that even if we were to compromise one standard, maybe even two standards, there would still be no compromise. There would still be no consequences. And thankfully, thankfully for me, there were no consequences that day except I felt very, very uncomfortable. But if you're going to avoid these cliffs, you're going to have to set up some barricades, some barriers. You're going to have to establish some standards. Maybe you're single, maybe you're in college, maybe you're in high school. You need to decide right now, right now, how far you're going to go with the person you date. Because I'm telling you, if you don't decide, somebody is going to decide for you. Trust me. If you don't have standards, somebody else's lack of standards are going to force you beyond where you're comfortable. So you know where the line is. You know where God wants you to be. So here's the question. How far back from the line do you want to stay? you got to decide. It's too late to make that decision, as I said before, when you're in the backseat of the car and your clothes are halfway off. And the windows are fogged up. Like, mm, I wonder how, long, how far I want to go with this whole situation here. That's not the time. And I'm going to give you a great standard. <clears throat> and right now, teenagers are going to hate me. But here's the standard, parents. Make your kids double dates. It is really, really hard for your kids to get in trouble when they're dating with another couple. And I know what some of you teens are thinking. Will you please shut up and not give my parents ammunition like this? If I do that, I would be the only one doing that. So what? You won't be, by the way, but even if you were, so what? In fact, I'll make you a promise. 
If you will make standards, if you will stick to your standards, you will never regret it as long as you live. You won't be like the song we heard earlier, I wish I could go back to I was 17. I wish I could do things differently. You'll never find yourself in that situation. You'll never regret it. In fact, most of the adults sitting around you this weekend, you know what they're thinking? They're thinking, I wish I would have had higher standards. Some of them looking back are thinking this, I wish I'd have just had some standards. But I'm telling you, nobody would celebrate the fact that they just did whatever they felt like doing with whoever they felt like doing it with. So I'm just telling you, the only way to stay away from moral disaster is to set up some guardrails, some barriers far back from the edge. And I promise you, you will not regret extreme measures. In fact, if you're married, here's a question that will help you know where to set the guardrails. How far do you want your spouse to go to protect himself or herself morally? How far do you want them to go? How extreme do you want them to be? You know what you're thinking? I want them to go really, really far. I want them to be really, really extreme. I want them to be faithful. I want them to be loyal. Well, if you want them to go to an extreme measure, doesn't it make sense that that's the standard for you too? By the way, can I tell you where affairs start? Nobody wakes up one day, looks at their phone and says, wow, my schedule's kind of light today. I think I'll go out and commit some adultery. It doesn't work that way. It's a process. Let me tell you where affairs start. And it, this just comes from counseling over the years. Here's one. Chatting online with members of the opposite sex. Did you know that 44% of marriage counseling today is directly related to social media? Is it wrong for you to be involved in a lot of social media? No. Is it smart? You got to decide. Here's another one. Searching for old sweethearts on Facebook. I wonder what they look like now. Wonder if they're married. Wonder if they're happy. And that's dangerous, especially if you're unhappy. And let me just give you a word of warning here. If you have a spouse and they have a code, they have, they, have a, they have a password to their computer or phone, and they will not give it to you, that ought to be the biggest red flag of warning in the world. The same with your teenagers. you got to be careful. you got to decide what's smart, what's not smart. Here's another one. Working late with members of the opposite sex. So you never thought, you never thought he was that handsome before. But you're hanging out together and you're getting to know him on a personal level. And he's just such a great leader. And all of a sudden, you're seeing somebody in a different light. You never thought she was that attractive. But it's late, you know. Here's another one. Having meals with members of the opposite sex. Say, Mike, what is wrong with that? Well, you take care of the business. It gets a little personal. A couple of glasses of wine. You know what I say, the difference between a dog and a fox, you know what it is? About three beers. About three beers. So you, you think about that later on, okay? Here's another one. Personal trainers of the opposite sex. I've seen it happen. Here's another one. Confiding in friends of the opposite sex about personal problems. Let me tell you something. If you have a friend of the opposite sex who wants to confide in you about their marriage, tell them to go get a counselor. 
Hurt their feelings if you have to, but don't hurt your marriage. What's going on in their marriage is none of your business. What's going on in your marriage is none of their business. I'm telling you, it sets you up for a level of intimacy you have no business entering into. You are in the danger zone. You are playing with fire. Here's another one. I had this not too long ago. It led to a divorce. Girls going dancing with their girlfriends because their husbands don't like to dance. Anything wrong with dancing? I don't think so, unless you're white. <laughs> I have said for years that it ought to be illegal for white people to dance. I've been to enough weddings and I've seen the flash mob of seizures taking place on the dance floor because of white people. Anything wrong with going to clubs and dancing? I don't think so. Is it illegal? No. Is it a sin? No. But I'm telling you, it is extraordinarily unwise. And I know what some of you ladies are thinking. You're just so, you're, you're that paranoid pastor. It's not like we go out there looking for men. Trust me, I dealt with this stuff for years. It all comes down to the question. To what degree are you willing to go to protect what is most important to you? I mean, think about it this way. We have all known people who've got themselves into a mess morally. And this is what we hear time and time again after the fact. I would do anything to be able to go back and undo what I have done. In fact, on the other side of the morality line, it's amazing to me the extremes to which a person is willing to go to fix the mess that they've created. I had a couple in my office last week, last Thursday, and it was so important that they meet with me on Thursday. And the reason they wanted to meet with me, and they told me I could share this, the reason they wanted to meet with me because it was a year ago that Thursday that she discovered that her husband was having an affair. But they wanted to tell me through God's grace and the power of forgiveness. And I'm telling you, this is an intelligent woman who never stopped beaming. She says, I would not wish this on anyone, but our marriage could never be what it is today if it hadn't happened. But here's the other thing I noticed. The entire time, her husband you could see the tears. The emotion was just right here. Because even a year later, he was still broken and repentant because of what he had done. And he says, man, when, when she told me she would stay with me, when I went to Lowe's, I called her. I said, I'm at Lowe's. I'm leaving to go to the gas station. I'm leaving the gas station. I'm going to the gym. I'm leaving the gym, and I'm going by Starbucks. And she said, I called her every three minutes. I wanted to let her know. I went to an extreme standard to try to get the relationship and the trust factor back again. Here's my question. Why not be extreme now instead of finding yourself in a situation where you have to be extreme? I mean, if the consequences are extreme, instead of going there, why not make some extreme decisions now? When it, what it comes down to is this. In our lives, we are either going to have extreme regret or we're going to have extreme standards. So I'm going to do something I don't think I've ever done here at Hope Community. I don't think I've ever done it in 33 years of pastoring. I'm going to ask you to commit to four commitments that I think flow right out of this message. Let me just give them to you. Here's the first commitment I'm going to challenge you to make this weekend. I will acknowledge my failure in the area of my sexuality, and I will confess it to God. 
In other words, I will admit, now that I understand what sexual immorality is, it's anything outside of those boundaries of a husband and a wife in a committed marriage relationship. I have wandered outside those boundaries. God, now I understand I am wrong and I'm asking your forgiveness. Maybe you got pregnant outside of marriage. Maybe you've had an abortion. Maybe you've had an affair. Maybe right now, even as I'm talking, you're sleeping with someone that you're not married to. Maybe you struggle with some form of sexual addiction or maybe pornography. Maybe, maybe you struggle with the same-sex attraction. You're having homosexual feelings. Maybe you've already crossed the line that you shouldn't have crossed and you're feeling the guilt. This is what I want you to hear. <laughs> you need to know this. God is head over heels in love with you. And I want you to know there is absolutely nothing that you have done sexually that cannot be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, his blood that was shed on the cross. Absolutely nothing. It is covered. I mean, it, the fact that we're here this weekend as a family is because we've all been offered grace. We've all been offered forgiveness. See, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is that Jesus Christ offered us, God offered us in his son, Jesus Christ, forgiveness, where we could not be reconciled back to God on our own, but it's the death and the blood of Jesus Christ that allows us to be reconciled. But I'm telling you, as a Christian, if you're coloring outside the lines, if there are sexual issues in your life, at some point, you got to confess it. At some point, if you want to experience God's best, you've got to do a 180, and you've got to start moving in the right direction. As we like to say at Hope, regardless of your past, it is never too late to start doing what's right. I got this email just a couple of weeks ago. The first half of it is giving me a little bit of history about this young couple. And then the young man, actually the, the, the subject line was this, I lost my girlfriend to God. And then later on in the email he writes, this past week during your conversation with the speaker on stage, and that was Sam here when I was doing the interview about same-sex attraction. You said how Christians aren't supposed to be unequally yoked. This really resonated with her, talking about his girlfriend. She and I have been having sex throughout our entire relationship. On Sunday, she broke up with me and said she wanted to live her life for God and be pure. I think she finally felt like I wasn't going to devote myself the same and that it just wasn't going to work out. He writes, I've really wanted to follow Jesus and have a relationship with God for myself in the past and for her and for our relationship. And I know that it's wrong to want it for someone else. She even said that's not the point. But fa finally, after all of this loss that I've experienced, I realize that I want to have a relationship with God for me. He goes on to say that he realizes it's too late for the relationship. But then he says this, last night I officially asked God into my life. I've decided to truly follow Jesus with all my heart. Now I don't know where it's going to take him. But I know this, it is never too late to start doing what is right. Here's the second commitment I'm going to ask you to make. I will restrict a sexual relationship for marriage. I will save myself sexually for the person that God is going to lead me to that I'm going to marry one day. This is what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. You know what that means? It means growing in holiness, becoming more like God. And Paul says this in verse 3, that you should avoid sexual immorality. This is one of the ways you become more like God. You stop coloring outside the lines. 
And it's because God intended the sexual relationship to be for the husband and wife in a marriage relationship. And it's only in the context of that kind of permanent commitment that sexual intimacy can be safely expressed. Because I am telling you, where there is sexual intimacy, but there's not the marriage commitment, I can promise you this. Somebody is going to get hurt. Because God did not make you emotionally, physically, to be able to deal with it. Here's the third commitment. I will maximize my marriage by serving and loving my spouse in our whole relationship, including our physical relationship. This is how Paul states it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm smiling because I just know the emails I'm going to get. So let me go ahead and read it to you, beginning in verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does, here it is, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. In other words, sexual fulfillment within marriage is so important to God. This is what God says to husbands and wives. It's your duty. It's your duty. In fact, you should think of your body as belonging to your spouse. Wives, you don't have authority over your body. <laughs> Gary Bett at gethope.net. Go ahead and email me, okay? <laughs> you do not have authority. Your husband does. Husbands, you do not have authority over your body. Your wife does. Are you sitting beside your spouse? Make sure it's your spouse. Turn to them and say, I'm all yours. Okay? I'm all yours. By the way, let me just say this. I don't know why God didn't make men and women's sexual needs the same. It sure would make marriage easier. But when men make the list of what's important to them, sex is number two on the list. Honor and respect is number one. Sex is number two. Women, it comes in at about 15. Put it in perspective, root canal is 14. Here... <laughs> Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Because we're different, see, we have a tendency to hear things through our own needs. For example, one of the needs of a woman is a need for non-sexual affection. Women like to be held. They like to, they like to cuddle without it leading to something. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, ladies. That makes no sense to men whatsoever. <laughs> it is a total waste of time and energy. But that's how God made women. And so when a man says, honey, I need sex, she's thinking he wants to cuddle. <laughs> oh, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. See. And when a woman says, honey, I need to cuddle, a man's thinking, <laughs> she wants this. <laughs> she can't resist this, right? Yes, she can. Yes, she can. For a long, long time, by the way. Now, here's the tension. Here's the tension. Here's the tension. If a man's need for sex isn't met at home, and this is why Paul was talking about this, we now live in a society that's telling him that there are other options. And when he goes to work every day, he is surrounded by women who, even though they know he's married, they're telling him there are other options. But men, let me say this. Even though this is a legitimate need, it's the way God made us. If we meet this need outside the context of a marriage, it is sexual immorality, it is wrong, and it is incredibly destructive. Now, here's the problem. There are often barriers to sexual intimacy, and that's why we stop sleeping together. 
That's why I've heard couples sleeping in separate rooms, right? They have these issues. They're not doing very good in, in, in fulfilling what Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It kind of reminds me of a joke. A young girl went to her mom and says, Mom, how old are you? And she, Honey, you don't ever ask a lady how old she is. And she said, well, how much do you weigh? Honey, you, you, you don't ever ask a lady how much she weighs. Well, why did you and dad get a divorce? Honey, that's just not appropriate. You don't ask mom something like that. So this girl, she's so frustrated, she's talking to her friend. She says, my mom won't answer any of these questions. And she said, just go look at her driver's license. You'll get all the information you need. So the next day she saw her mom and she says, mom, I know how old you are. You're 42. And I know how much you weigh, 135. And I know why you and dad got a divorce. You got an F in sex. <laughs> some of you, some of you will get that in a while, Okay. Right now, some of you are getting an F, but there's a reason. Maybe there's hurt, maybe there's embarrassment, maybe there's trauma in your past your spouse doesn't even know about. Maybe there are things that have gone on in the relationship, they haven't been resolved, so there hasn't been forgiveness. Maybe your physical relationship involves issues that are so complicated. They're not going to be resolved by simply down, sitting down and having a conversation. You're going to need a counselor. If you've been through abuse, ladies, there's a slide. I want to just put this up here. It's a, it's a contact for you. Go to www.hope.org-connection.org. It'll give you all the information. We have a ministry here that we can help you and come alongside of you. But you got to deal with it. you got to talk about it. So I'm asking you to make a commitment to not withhold yourselves from each other. It's unwise. It's unbiblical. And it puts you right smack dab in the middle of a danger zone. And if you've lost the sizzle in your marriage, I'm going to just tell you. We know that it takes three weeks of doing something every day to make it a habit again. So I challenge you again, the 21-day sex connects, the, the sex experiment. Just figure out every day for 21 days, you're going to become intimate again. See what happens. Last time we did this, we had an explosion in the nursery, by the way. But anyway... <laughs> But anyway, there's another way of building a church. But hey, <laughs> it's your duty. Here's the fourth commitment. I will talk to my children about their sexuality and about God's plan for them. Look at this, Deuteronomy, i got to go, chapter 6, verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your home and your gate. My point is this, God's design is that the family be the primary place for sex education. Now as a church, as student ministries, we can come alongside and we can assist but it was designed to take place in the family. That doesn't mean that you just have one talk about the birds and the bees and then you're done. This is going to involve an ongoing conversation. You've got to talk to your kids about their bodies, changes they're going through. It would include dating and marriage, how they feel about members of the opposite sex. And I know what the barrier is to this, parents. It feels awkward. I'll never forget when I got up the courage to finally have this conversation with Aaron and Adam. And they were young and we were driving somewhere. And I finally got the nerve and I started talking to them about it. And they said... Dad, mom talked to us about this two years ago. You're, you know, like you're a little behind. So, you know, Laura was willing to get in there and have the conversation. It took me a while to catch up. I get it. But parents, you need to make the commitment even though it feels awkward. You need to decide, I'm just going to be relentless about honoring Christ in this area and doing the best I can. So, parents, I would just challenge you. 
let's commit to making this next generation better educated, better prepared, better equipped to deal with this whole topic of sexual intimacy than we have been educated and prepared and equipped. Because I'm telling you, looking around at our culture, we have done a horrible job. And I'll tell you this, if we will make these commitments as a church, we will become an island of sanity in a sea of sexual chaos. What do you say we just go old school and we just trust God and his word and we decide we're going to be obedient to it and let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Let's pray. Father, I realize this is a very, very sensitive topic and I realize that it's, it's one that we have to address. It's in your word. It's like people now saying, I wish you'd talk about money because that seems so much better than this. But God, we have to talk about it because it's our duty as husband and wives. We don't have the freedom to have children and become so wrapped up in our children that this part of our marriage escapes and we, we move into the danger zone. It's our duty. You created us. You know that we're but dust. You know you know how we need to operate. You know that emotionally and psychologically, physically, we're not set up and wired to handle multiple sexual partners. This is not your way of being mean to us, but it's your way of protecting us and making sure that we experience God's best. I pray for marriages that are on the ropes. This might be the one thing that begins to move them back into a direction of oneness. I pray for those who are single and the temptations. Maybe they've already been married, so it makes it extra hard not to be able to have this part of their relationship, but God, give them the strength to realize that you've established these boundaries for a reason. For college students, for high school students, where they're in a culture where it is so accepted and just a part of life. I pray that you would help them to understand that you have called us you have a higher calling, a higher standard for us. And it's in our best interest. Father, if people could sit in my office and listen to marriage counseling and realize how many of the issues go back many times to multiple sexual partners before they were ever married, they would understand the song that was sung earlier. If I'd have known then what I know now. Or help that to explode in their mind this weekend. That your way is the right way. In your name we pray. Amen.